0: I was reading through the bulletin and saw all of the history of this congregation for these 60 years. And I thought about how many people have sacrificed for so many years in order to bring this congregation about. The great sacrifices to build a building like this one, and the various preachers that you had here before. And when I was in college, I got to hear Brother Foy Wallace one time in my life. I can remember as a boy when S. C. Cunningham was the preacher at the Central Church of Christ in Shawnee, Oklahoma. I remember those days. And I'm thankful that these men have had a great part in this work and in your lives and what they have meant to you. If you have your Bibles, open up them with me to the book of Acts, chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, and we're going to look at the last. Four or five verses there. And this is where Paul is in Caesarea. I have been to Caesarea, and I have been to the place where the ruins are where Paul would have stood before Felix. Felix was quite a a fellow. He actually was in the same role that Pontius Pilate was. Pontius Pilate's main home was in Caesarea and on the sea and not in Jerusalem, although he had a dwelling there. But his main work was in Caesarea. And now Felix is in that role and Paul is being tried for his faith. And the Jews, of course, were out to get him. But Felix was interested in Paul and interested in some of these things because his wife was a Jewess. And in verse 24 it says, But some days later Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened. And he said, go away for the present. When I find time, I will summon you. And at the same time, too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. And therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Felix left Paul in prison. Felix was a very ungodly man. He was a man given to anger, and he mistreated those who were his servants. His wife was a Jewess. In fact, his wife was one of the daughters of the Herods. He married her at the age of 16. And she was married, uh, uh, Herod, not, not Felix, But Herod's daughter was married off at the age of 16 to King Aziz of Amasa in Syria. And while she was there, Felix came to visit. And he fell in love with her. And he got a sorcerer to seduce her. And he stole her away whenever the king was away on business. And he took her back to Caesarea to be his own wife. That's the kind of man Felix was. So you can imagine, whenever Paul began to preach, and he began to preach about righteousness, well, Felix knew he wasn't a righteous man. When he began to preach on self-control, Felix knew he didn't have much self-control by the way he dealt with his wife and the way he dealt with his servants. When he preached about the judgment to come, ah, Felix became frightened. Now, you you just go away for the present time. When I find time, I'll, I'll call you and we can talk. Now, he often sent for him to talk about money, but not about Jesus. I've often thought, Tim, what I wouldn't give to have two years of exclusive access to the Apostle Paul. He had that. But as far as we know, Felix never became a Christian. This morning, what I want to do is give you eight reasons why you should become a Christian. Now, I know that there's a dinner across the way. And I promise you, we're going to go through these eight reasons very quickly. And the first one is this. And that is that God loves you. God loves you. In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3 and 4, it says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who loves you. And desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God is on your side. He doesn't want you to be lost. He doesn't want you to have to suffer His wrath. He wants you to be saved and to know what the truth is. And He loves you. Why, every one of us from the time we were as young as these little boys over here had been hearing that passage that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And God loves you and God loves me. God knows all about us and He loves us anyway. And I'm thankful for that. He cares about our souls. He wants us to be saved. He made us. You know, God was there the day that you were born. He was there the day that you cut your first tooth, said your first word, and took your first step. God was there when you were sick and He was there when you were well. There isn't anything that you've ever thought, anything that you've ever done that God doesn't know and He loves you. And He wants to be close to you. Now, I love my wife, Jackie. And she loves me. I love my four beautiful daughters. And they love me. I love my twelve grandchildren, eleven which are girls and one boy. Yeah. And I love them and they love me. And I love my brothers and sisters and my wife's brothers and sisters. But I tell you... Nobody ever loved me like Jesus. Nobody ever died for my sins but Jesus Christ. And nobody could ever give me the forgiveness of sins but Jesus. I tell you, if there were no other reason for you to become a Christian than the Lord Jesus Christ and His love for you and dying upon the cross for you, if there were no other reason than that, that would be enough to be a Christian. But a second reason is this. And that is that God's way is the way of righteousness. There are different directions that people go in life. Some of those directions are, are not so good. But there's one way that is good, and God gives us that one narrow way. You remember the Lord Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who, who go that way, who enter through that wide, broad way. Everything's great. Everything's wonderful, they think. But it leads to destruction. He says to you, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. He wants you to go through that right way. And I tell you, everything that was ever written in this book, every word, every law, every commandment, every precept, was written for our good. In fact, Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, in verse 24, he said, So the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always. And for our survival as it is today. It's for our good. Every law that God ever gave was to keep you out of the ditches. Keep you out of problems. Things that would help you and bless you. And not only bless you, but bless the people who are around you. Because when you mess up, you may lead somebody else to mess up. But when you stay straight, you may keep somebody else straight. And God's Word was given to us to help us to be what we ought to be. And the life that we have is an abundant life. Oh yes, I tell you, God's way is the right way. And so the Apostle Paul writes in the book of Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And the one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There is a difference between the two. There is a difference between corruption and life. There's a difference between right and wrong. There's a difference between what is good and good for us and what is bad and bad for us and everybody around us. God wants us to live the best way. I tell you a second reason is because God's way is the right way, the best way, the good way to live. A third reason is this. and That is that Jesus is everything He claimed to be. Jesus indeed is the Son of God. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the King. He is the prophet. He is the Savior. He is the Creator of this world. And He is full of grace and truth. And He is the one that we need to seek out. When I think about the book of Acts, as it opens up, there Luke writes that Jesus... To these, speaking of the apostles, the disciples, to these He also presented Himself alive after His suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. When you think about Jesus, He had to convince His apostles that yes, He had risen from the dead. He had prophesied it. Now, they had seen all of His miracles. They had seen all of the things that He did. They knew that He could... Raise the dead that He could heal the sick, that He could make the deaf to hear, the blind to see, those who were mute to be able to speak. He was there and He took out demons and they saw all of those things. But they were questioning and wondering, did He really rise from the dead? And He appeared. And you remember that there was Thomas who said, unless I can put my hand into His hand, unless I can put it into His side, I will not believe. And Jesus said, okay, eight days later, come on, Thomas. You put your your finger here. You put it here. Thomas didn't have to. He said, My Lord and my God. John 20 and verse 28. When I think about the fact that He spoke to them and they heard Him. That He appeared to them and they touched Him. 1 John 1 verse 1 and 2. That He was around them. That He ate with them. He proved Himself over that period of 40 days with many convincing proofs, and they believed. And these people who were afraid and hid in the upper room, these people who didn't know whether they believed or not, whenever the day of Pentecost stood, they stood there boldly, and they preached, and they said, we are eyewitnesses of His resurrection. We know it happened, and we can proclaim it to you. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ. There was a faith that was there. A faith that would take a beating. A faith that would be put in jail. A faith that some of them would be killed, but they stood strong and they never denied what they believed. There was a reason to believe in Jesus as the fulfillment of all the prophecies and His own prophecies. And what they could say was, Jesus is everything He complained. He contended that He was and He claimed to be. Oh, I think about how God raised Him from the dead and He declared with power that Jesus is the Son of God by raising Him from the dead. Romans 1 and verse 4. Jesus is everything He claimed to be. And number four is this. And that is that time, time is short. Tim, last year I went on Medicare. This year I started drawing Social Security. I never thought of myself in a situation like that. I never thought of myself as being a senior citizen. I always thought of myself as being young, full of life, like an energizer bunny. But I remember the words of James, James 4 and verse 13, following. He said, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we're going to go to such and such a city, and we're going to spend a year there, we're going to engage a business, and we're going to make a profit. <laughs> and then James says, yet yeah, you don't know what your life is going to be like on tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. And he says, uh, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord will.'" We will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is is evil. And therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. Time is short. You don't know what your life is going to be like. I've been in ministry for 47 years. More than once, it's been my sad duty to stand over a little child or baby that was born Lived a few hours. There are times that I've buried teenagers. And people in their twenties. And thirties. And forties. Time is short. And we don't have any promise that we're going to get to live to be old. We don't have any promise that life will continue to go on. Time is short. Sometimes people say, well, I've got plenty of time, are you sure? I think about the words of Jesus in the book of Luke chapter 12 beginning in verse 16. It says, And He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And He began reasoning to Himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And He said, Well, you know, this is what I'll do. I'm just going to tear down my barns. I'm going to build larger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and all my goods. And I'll say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. You just... Come and take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Thou fool. Wouldn't you hate for God to call you a fool? Thou fool, this very night, your soul is required of you. And then he says, So is the man who stores up treasure for himself. But is not rich toward God. Time is short. And it may be shorter than any of us imagine. Not only, number four, that time is short, number five is that death is certain. Hebrews 9 and verse 27 it's appointed for men once to die, and after this comes judgment. That's certain. That's sure. We may not like to think about life being over. We may not like to think about dying, but the fact of the matter is, every one of us, young and old, we are on a journey. And there will come a day when that journey will end. Death will come and we will face judgment before God. Now, there are some things that are just absolute. I remember my daughter coming home from high school and she said to me, she said, Daddy, one of my friends said to me, there are no absolutes. And I looked at her and I kind of laughed and I said, well, does he think he's going to live forever? Because if there's one thing I know is that unless the Lord comes first, every one of us are going to go and make that journey onto the other side. That nobody lives forever. Just like you can't fly a plane into the sun and live. Just like you can't go under the water and take off your oxygen mask And live under there on and on and live. You can't do it. There are some absolutes. I've flown from one end of this country to the other. I've seen lots and lots of mountains. And do you know that trees, there is a tree line beyond which higher than that the trees won't grow? Why? Because there's an absolute. Oh, there may be one tree higher than another. And some people say, oh, see, look at all that as relatives. But there is a place in which the oxygen level is so low that they cannot survive. There are absolutes. There are absolutes. And one of those is that this life will one day end. Well, life is short and death is certain. And number six is that heaven is too good to miss. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And He's done this so that we might obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. And then it's reserved in heaven for you. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. I think about heaven and how it's imperishable. And how it's unblemished. There is nothing there that's defiling. And how it will not fade away. And I think about how it's reserved for you. Brother Tim brought me to the hotel on Friday afternoon. We walked in and the, the sweet young lady was there. And he said, we have a reservation for Phil Sanders. And she says, yes, you do. Yes, you do." I'm just glad. I've been in situations where I've walked in and said, I'm Phil Sanders. I have a reservation. And they say, no, you don't. <laughs> one time I was at the wrong hotel. The guy told me the wrong place to go. Another time the guy had forgotten to put it in my name, he put it in his own name. But I was always glad, but God's not that way. God's got a place for you with your name on it. Why? Because you're His child. You're His son. You're His daughter. And you're special to Him. You're somebody that when God says, I've got a place for you, it's a wonderful place. And a glorious place. That nothing can destroy and nothing can ruin. And it won't ever fade away. It will always be beautiful. And it's got your name on it. Oh, I'm thankful for that. I think about a place where there's no disease, where there's no sorrow, where there's no crying, there's no war, there's no death. It's a place of eternal joy and peace and love. It's the place where God Himself, your Father and mine, who's heard every prayer we've ever prayed, that's where He lives. And He wants you there too. Oh, heaven is too good a place to miss. Number seven is this. And that is that hell is real. Someone says, Well, Phil, do you really believe in hell? And my answer to that question is yes. I believe in hell because Jesus believes in hell. You remember the Lord Jesus said in Matthew ten and verse twenty eight, Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear Him who is able to kill both body and soul in hell or destroy body and soul in hell. That's what the Lord Jesus said. You know of the twelve times the word Gehenna appears in the New Testament? The word Gehenna translated hell. Eleven of those times are on the lips of Jesus Himself. Jesus was not trying to be mean to people when He talked about hell. He was not trying to, to manipulate them or. To, to upset them, He was trying to warn them because He didn't want them to go there. And he doesn't want you to go there or to me to go there. He loves us. He didn't want anyone to have to go to that place of fire and torment. That place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. He wouldn't want anybody to go there and that's why He went to the cross. So that no one would have to go there. Yes, hell is real. And we need to believe the words of Jesus. And number eight, that's this and that is that you'll never, never regret doing what is right. Now, sin has a lot of terrible consequences that may hurt for a lifetime. And I've known people who've done the wrong thing and they have suffered for it. And I think about the sinner's cry and the sinner's cry was always... You know, if I could change things, if I could go back and do it differently, I wouldn't do it like that. They don't want to go back and do things the way they did them because they know the terrible consequences of doing the wrong thing. Sometimes whenever a person does the right thing, he suffers for it. Even when he's done the right thing. But you know what? When people do the right thing and suffer for it, they don't regret it. I think about Joseph, who said no to Potiphar's wife and wound up in prison. I think about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. And they said no to the most powerful man in the world, Nebuchadnezzar, and were thrown into the fiery furnace. They said even if we don't get saved, we're not going to change. I think about Daniel, who said no to the king. That he was going to continue to pray and was thrown in the lion's den. I think about the apostles and how they were told, don't you preach anymore. And they said, look, we must obey God rather than men. They were beaten and jailed and some were killed. But they held fast and they didn't regret it. I think about Stephen and James who lost their lives for their faith. if we could go out to the graves and we could raise up the dead and the lost and ask them the question, was it worth it? They would say to us at this point in time, no, no, it wasn't worth it. Listen to me. Do everything you can not to come to this place. Don't believe those lies. Don't be deceived about sin. Don't you come here. You don't want to be here. You don't want anything to do with this place. Do everything, everything, everything you can to do what's right and stay away from what's wrong. If we could go out to the graves to those who are dead and right with God and ask them the question, was it worth it? They would say to us with one loud, clear voice, Oh, yes, it was worth it. A thousand times it was worth it. And do everything you can to stand fast in your faith and to stay with God. And don't let anybody, don't let anybody keep you from serving God. Oh, I tell you, you'll never regret doing the right thing. And I think of the words of the Apostle Paul. In the book of Romans chapter 8 and verse 18 where he said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And it won't. You won't regret living for the Lord. Now what I've done is given you eight reasons why you should become a Christian. And I think that there could be 80 more But let me ask you this question. Can you think of any good reason why you should not become a Christian? Can you think of even one? Someone says, Well, I went up to that church, and there was a guy who said he was a Christian, and he offended me. I'm so sorry that you were offended. But it wasn't Jesus who offended you. It was that person. I'm not asking you to follow that person. I'm asking you to follow Jesus. Someone says, well, Phil, don't you know there are hypocrites in the church? Well, how can a man be a preacher for 47 years and not know there are hypocrites in the church? Of course I know. But I'm not asking you to be a hypocrite. I'm asking you to follow Jesus. God will deal with His hypocrites on His own. Someone says... Well, I don't think I can live the Christian life. Well, if you're trying to do it all by yourself, you probably won't be able to live the Christian life. But let Jesus help you. Let Him help you. Well, someone says, well, well, what about this or what about that? That's not important. What about you and what about your soul and what about your eternity and what about your destiny and whether or not you're going to be forgiven and whether or not you're going to be able to live with God forever and ever? What about you? Someone says, well, I don't like living by all those rules. Well, you won't like the consequences of breaking them either. Don't let excuses keep you from being right with God. But now, let me just suggest this to you. Now, let's say that you think you have a reason why you should not become a Christian. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take out a sheet of paper... And I, I want you to take your pen and I, I want you to write out all the reasons why you won't become a Christian. Now I want you to spell your words right. I want you to think about it. I want you to do the best job you can. I want you to write it down. All the reasons why you won't become a Christian. And I want you to take that and put it in your pocket. And on the day of judgment, when you stand before the throne, I want you to take that out. And I want you to look Jesus in the eye and I want you to read all those reasons why you would not follow Him. Why He didn't love you or why you felt this or you felt that. And when you finish, I want you to put it into His nail-scarred hand. His hand... Which suffered for you. You see, it's not me that you have to give an account to. It's not even to one another or to Tim or to anyone. It's to the Lord Jesus. And when you decide that you don't want to follow Him, when you decide that you're not going to be His, not only are you hurting yourself. But you may lead somebody to the left or to the right of you, somebody that follows you, some child of yours, to be lost to. I can't think of anything worse than being lost. Unless it would be to wake up in a place of torment and hear some sweet voice behind me say, Daddy, Daddy, is that you? We're talking eternity. We're talking our destiny. We're talking about somebody who loves us more than life itself and was willing to die for us. Don't offer an excuse. Become a Christian. Believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ. Repent of your sins. Confess His name and be baptized. So that your sins can be washed away and you can become a child of God, born again, added to His kingdom, and have the hope of eternal life. If you need to do that this morning, now is the time to respond while we stand and sing.